Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this body, for this opportunity to meet weekly, for the chance to to get to know you better through your word and through the community of the saints that meet here at Verse by Verse Fellowship. Thank you, Father, that we're working to maximize our obedience, which will encourage your pleasure in us and ultimately, Father, reflect in our eternal reward. And our, we do not see our relationship with you as transactional, Lord. You know that that's the case. Our hearts are overflowing with, with love and thanks and gratitude for all that you've done for us. We know we're unworthy of the mercy we've received. That's why they call it grace. And yet, Father, we are so encouraged that a Father who loves us so much that he not only would die on the cross for our sake and his Son, but he would also make possible great reward for those who serve him. And you've explained these things in Scripture so that we would not be ignorant of what opportunities lie ahead, so that we would not chase after this world, but have our eyes squarely on what comes. But, Father, the world intrudes. Our desires, the distractions, the fears, the worries of our life, they always seem to get in the way of obedience. If we're not chasing after something glittering and exciting, we're despairing over the lack of something we feel we need. And in the midst of all that, Father, we forget that our heavenly account is all that matters and that our future with you is assured. This world is passing. We have overcome this world, and a new one is soon to come. Father, help us raise our eyes up out of our everyday concerns. Help us put them squarely on Christ, fixing our gaze on him, the author and perfecter of our salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, it's time to turn the page. So we're now moving forward in our study of Matthew into chapter 8. Tonight we're going to move away from the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we've been now since chapter 5. And we come into a new section in Matthew's Gospel. Last week we capped off Jesus' teaching as we looked at those series of illustrations that he finishes with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And each of those illustrations was a contrast, a contrast between what Jesus had been saying and what the Pharisees had been saying about one truth versus another so-called truth, two ways, two gates, and all the rest. All of that was intended to reinforce for the audience that had just listened to his sermon that for centuries now, their leaders, their teachers, the Pharisees, had been misleading them, had been teaching Israel something wrong, on the nature of righteousness and on the nature of the kingdom. And because of that negative influence and its compounding effect on the culture of Israel over centuries, that nation in his day was now largely biblically illiterate. And for some, I think that might be a shock to hear that the pious and zealous Jewish culture of old that still continues to today could actually be biblically illiterate. And in fact, it is both true then and true now. The typical Jew, even an observant or even an orthodox Jew, knows very little of what's in the Bible. And I'm speaking of the Old Testament in their case, of course, but that's the Bible to them. And so when you think about that state of affairs, both then and now, but back on that mount, as Jesus stood on that side of the Galilee and preached this sermon to this crowd, you have to appreciate then how stunning his words would have been to that crowd. I mean, for us, it's scripture. We've probably read this before, and it's somewhat familiar. But not to them. It challenged everything they thought they knew. And it was even more challenging because of the way he taught it. 
the way he carried himself. Notice what Matthew says about him. And we actually had two verses at the end of 7 that we didn't cover last week. So that's my jumping off point tonight as we move into 8. Look at what's said at the very end of the sermon in verse 28. These are Matthew's words. He says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For, and here's the reason, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now, Matthew says that as Jesus finished his, his, his first true sermon, this is the first time Jesus has actually delivered a lengthy discourse in the Gospels, the crowds are just sitting there amazed. I would imagine some of them have their mouths open, just stunned. They just could not believe what they were hearing from Jesus and what they were seeing. And here's why. In verse 29, Matthew says, What amazed them most was that he could teach as one having authority, which is to say he did not teach in the way Pharisees taught. And to understand what I mean and to understand what Matthew's saying, you have to learn a little bit about the traditional rabbinical method of teaching within Judaism. Uh, The best way I can explain this, I came up with this myself, so I'm very proud of this. The best way to explain the distinction, I think, is to compare rabbinical teaching tradition with that child's game of telephone. Do you remember that game you played in grade school? That's the game where someone says a phrase to someone else quietly, and then that person repeats that phrase to the next person, and then they repeat it to the next, and so on. And as it transitions across the room and comes to the end, you know, you know how that ends, right? The message is changed with each repetition, just a little bit, and so it becomes more confusing over time. And when it gets to the end, it's indistinguishable from what started at the beginning, right? Well, that's a very easy way to understand the rabbinical teaching methods of Jesus' day, how they handled truth, how they handled the Word of God. In the beginning, scribes, by the way, got their start with Ezra. Ezra was the first scribe, and he was a good guy. He came into Israel out of the the Babylonian captivity, and he led Israel back to their word, back to the law. And he taught directly from the word of God, educating them. But as that teaching of Ezra got handed down to future generations of Israel, a new tradition began to develop among the rabbis. That tradition required that new rabbis who came along and wanted to teach could not contradict previous rabbinical teaching. Or they could not even attempt to go back to the origin, to the Word of God itself, and teach directly out of the Word of God. At a certain point in their history, that was no longer permitted. A rabbi, you know, it was like going off-road. They couldn't go off-road. They had to stay between the lines. And a rabbi's teaching had to be based on prior teaching using that earlier teaching as their starting point for whatever they were going to do next in their teaching, and they couldn't contradict it. The idea, I guess, is something like what you see today with court precedent. The idea that a judge renders his or her opinion in a case based on prior case law so that whatever they decide is rooted in some prior decision. Okay, So rather than going back to the source in this case, the Word of God, to teach spiritual truth... What rabbis began doing was studying and building upon each other's teaching rather than going back to the origin. It's like a centuries-old game of telephone. So what do you think happened? Well, by Jesus' day, rabbinical teaching had come to the point where it involved summarizing and applying the teaching of rabbis, not the teaching of God's Word. So a rabbi would introduce his own teaching by saying something like, Rabbi Solomon said, in the name of Rabbi Saul, and so on. Right, So you're just listening to this handed-down teaching. In that way, each rabbi's authority was growing out of the authority of a prior rabbi, 
But that tradition also had the effect of keeping any new rabbi's teaching in line with all prior teaching, which was a sign of respect for those prior teachers. But here's the irony of the system. The irony of the system is it gave rabbis legitimacy, but it stripped their teaching of any legitimacy. They were seen as legitimate because they were standing on the shoulders of other men, but what they actually said was nonsense. That's how you get laws in Judaism that say it's a sin to eat a cheeseburger. It's not because that's in the Bible. What started in the Bible was do not boil, boil a kid, a young goat, in its mother's milk. That's what the Bible said. Cheeseburgers became enemies because after a game of telephone over centuries, people had created rules out of rules out of rules out of rules. And now they don't even know why they're doing it anymore. It's just what it means to be Jewish. That's the error of pharisaical rabbinical teaching. And Jesus knew that and Jesus countered it. Each new generation of rabbis had to work under the presumption that all prior rabbinical interpretation was true. That was their starting point. So over time, the the teaching just moved further and further away from where it started. And since rabbis themselves were not permitted to go back to Scripture for their teaching, they could never self-correct. They could never get back to the source and say, wait a minute, we got this wrong, guys. Fast forward to Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the original message of Scripture was like a faint echo at that point, which is why his sermon is such a revelation to the crowd that heard it because they've never heard anything like it. The typical Jew in that day never studied Scripture for himself. They only ever... Now, keep in mind, when I say study Scripture, I mean I don't mean they didn't read it. They read it all day long. They read it like this in front of a wall all day long. They read Scripture, but that's not the same thing as understanding Scripture, and it's certainly not the same thing as studying it for the purpose of teaching it. You see the difference, right? So they heard it, but they never studied it. And so they never knew the the truth of it. All they ever received were these twisted rabbinical interpretations that were handed down. So to that world, Jesus was a breath of fresh air. Right? He was like a whole new world. They had been told, no, you trust your rabbis because they're part of an unbroken chain of authority going all the way back to Ezra and Moses. You ever heard something like that before? Uh, Speaking of someone who came out of a Catholic background, I remember that some of the nonsense that was promulgated by the Catholic Church to me, was defended because, well, we have our authority all the way back to Peter. Which is not true, by the way. But the point is, they established some kind of credibility. Why? Because we can trace people. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me. I want to know if it's in the Bible. And that kind of substituting of authority, not God's authority anymore, but the authority of men, is the first step to getting into a really bad place with your understanding of things. So, they encounter a man like Jesus. Now, this crowd is not a bunch of scholars. We're not saying that they could sit there and critically dissect what he's saying. That wasn't even necessary because they encounter a man teaching with uh, a power and grace and wisdom, self-evident truths, tra- straight from the Bible. This is, this is like nothing they've ever encountered. Never once did Jesus refer to any other rabbi's teachings to support his own conclusions. Not once. And they recognized this man teaches as one having authority. And when Jesus said, my teaching is a summation of the law and the prophets, what he did is said, use the Bible as your test for what I'm saying. Go to scripture to know if what I say is true. Let's forget all the middlemen. But at the same time, it would have been dawning on some, if not everyone, in that crowd 
that if this is true and this is the way to find the truth about God and the kingdom and so on, well then, that Pharisaic nonsense, that ain't right. You can't have it both ways. I mean, they're in direct contradiction to one another. Jesus was not only undermining the teaching of the Pharisees as he delivered this sermon, he's also challenging their very source of authority. Their whole system is now under scrutiny. He invalidated rabbinical traditions. He delegitimized them as guardians of the truth. Right there on that mountain, in about 20 minutes, he tore down their entire facade. That's, that's heady stuff. His teaching proved that the understanding of the Word of God is not a privilege reserved for some ancient group of honored sages. It is, apart from a creation, an entity of its own standing apart and independent in its authority. And in fact, in the Bible it says that even when the heavens and the earth pass away, the Word of God will still remain. So the point is this. There is no one who tells you what the Word of God means. God himself tells you what his word means by his spirit to those he chooses. And Jesus set himself apart in that regard from man, from people, from any other authority, teaching on his own authority. And, you know, you can stand up in a time uh, even like this and say, I'm going to teach on my own authority. But, you know, here's the thing. If people are listening with ears to hear and the spirit of God is at work, if you're saying nonsense... People will know it's nonsense. I mean, by and large, people will get the fact that this guy is not right. But when you're teaching truth from the Word of God, and the Spirit of God is confirming that in your heart, you'll also know that. That's been my experience. You may not understand all the details of it. You may not have the fullest appreciation of the theology of it, but something inside you resonates and you know, there's something here I need to pay attention to. And conversely, you know when you shouldn't. Now, that's what Jesus did. He repudiated Israel's entire religious system and its leaders and declared that the proper view of God, the proper view of righteousness and the kingdom is only found directly in an understanding of what's in the Word of God. That's still the truth. That's still our mantra today. That's still why a church like this comes together at all. Because we are testifying to ourselves and to the world that there is no authority outside the Word of God to the church. Christ, through the Word, by the Spirit, is the authority of His church. There's no one else that has to get involved in that process for us to know and follow Christ obediently. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't under authority. You just saw the men of the church, the elders and their wives, stand up here just to make the point that there is leadership in place. But we're all submitted to the same Word. We're all submitted to the same Lord. None of us direct your access to God. Or to his word. And I know there's a, there tends to be a thought within Protestantism that that's a unique problem of Catholics. You know, you've got to go through the priest or maybe some other religions of sorts that do that. You've got to go through the imam. You've got to go through this person, that person. But us Protestants, we don't have that problem. Well, maybe. Maybe not in doctrine. But in practice, I still see it sometimes. I've told people, look, this is what this means. And they said, well, that's not what my pastor says. Well, okay, what does he say? Well, I don't know, but he never said that. And if he doesn't say it, not true for me. I don't listen to anybody else. I've got all his tapes and CDs, and I read all his books, and if he doesn't say it, it ain't real. Uh, Well, I'm glad you have such a devotion to your pastor. I'm sure he appreciates that. But, you know, he's not always right. No one is. Not me, not him, not anyone. I have the same thing that happens to me. People say, you know what? If Steve doesn't say it, it ain't true. I only read your stuff, Steve. And I always tell people... If they say, I don't listen to anyone but you, I say, you know, that's not good. You should stop doing that. 
You should stop that. And of course, I have to say it nicely or I make people feel bad, but that's not my goal. But I'm serious. If I'm the only voice you ever listen to, then you're going to be wrong wherever I'm wrong. Why would you want to be wrong with me? I don't want you to be wrong with me. Because when I face my judge and I have to give an account to the souls who are entrusted to me, I don't want to stand before Jesus and say, I know, I told him to go somewhere else, but they wouldn't do anything else. They just listened to me. I mean, I'm being a little funny about it, but the point I'm making is this. Even in our Protestant theology, we can still find people we like so much and and we, we have so much affinity for what they do in ministry that we close our ears off to God himself in the way that he can speak to us through a variety of means. I'm saying in the sense of different teachers or in different moments of our life, in prayer or in godly counsel. You know, if we're just fixed on one voice, that's not good. And I don't want everyone to think that because I put my voice on the internet or because we want to get teaching outside this room, that that somehow thinks, means that we think we've got it all together and, and, and no one else does. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying, I've got a gift, I'm going to use it. That's it. And it'll go somewhere and do what it's supposed to do. In Jesus' time, he was the expert. He is the perfect teacher. He, you know, he is the one, if you want to listen to one voice, that you always listen to. But when he threw the gauntlet down, as he did in this sermon against the Pharisees, something else got started that you're going to see play out now in this gospel. He sowed the seeds of his own death right here in this sermon. Now, this isn't going to be the last time he does it. And this isn't the moment that the Pharisees launched their conspiracy to kill him. Not yet. But from this point forward, everyone knew that Jesus was on a collision course with the religious establishment of Israel. He just put himself in their sights. So where does it go from here? Well, in chapter 4, the very end of 4, right before this sermon started, Matthew told us that he wasn't just out teaching, he was also demonstrating power through healing of diseases and the removal of demonic spirits from individuals and so on. He would use the miracles to draw the crowds so they could hear his teaching. And these two things work together. So the argument would go this way. If Jesus has authority over the demonic realm, and even over the creation itself, well then, certainly, he must be more powerful than either. And if he is more powerful than either of these powerful things, well then he has something good to say. We ought to be listening carefully to what he has to say. That's the way the miracles work with the teaching. So, what would you expect him to do next? He's just taught a powerful sermon. Time to do a little bit of miracle work, right? Just to reinforce the fact that you're listening to someone you can trust. Sure enough, that's where we go next. What follows next in Matthew's Gospel is a section that runs from chapter 8 almost to the end of chapter 9. And in that two-chapter segment, Matthew relates ten miracles that Jesus does. Now, in the way Matthew constructs his narrative, these are not chronological. He has pulled these from different moments in Jesus' ministry. We know that by comparing Matthew's Gospel to the other Gospels. We know that these are not back-to-back moments. So we'll understand that as we study it. But that just begs the question, why did Matthew want to sandwich all of these together into one section? What was his point? Well, these ten accounts of different kinds of miracles all support Jesus' claim to be Messiah in some unique ways. And Matthew invites a comparison in the way he does this. By the miracles he picks and the way he organizes them, he invites a comparison back to the plagues of Egypt, those ten plagues that Moses brought. That is, while Moses' miracles came upon Egypt for the purpose of destruction, this time God's servant in Jesus will perform miracles of healing and restoration for his people. Matthew reports these miracles in three 
basic categories. There are miracles of healing the body, power over creation, and there are miracles of authority over the spirit realm. Most importantly, and especially for tonight, this 10 miracle section starts and ends with two miracles that are critical to validating Jesus' claim to be Messiah. They're so critical, in fact, they have a special name, Messianic Miracles. And we're going to look at one of them tonight. Let's study the first. It's in Matthew 8, verse 1. I told you we'd get there. He says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, so in your mind's eye, if you can imagine the Galilee, now some of you have been there, maybe some haven't, but it's a smallish body of water, and the hillsides that surround it are quite steep. They all rise up very quickly from the water, most of them. So Jesus has been on one of these very high hillsides and teaching now for a little while. And as he comes down, he comes down toward what we'll find later to be Capernaum. And it's on the northwest side of the, of the lake. And as he's coming down, he's bringing a large crowd with him. And in the course of his movement, he comes across, he encounters this man, as you see, who has leprosy. Now, leprosy, today we call it Hansen's disease. It's a bacterial infection. Only about 5% of the world's population is even capable of contracting it. Do you know that? 95% of the world is naturally immune to leprosy. Uh, Interesting fact, here in South Texas, the armadillo naturally carries that bacteria. So if you pick up an armadillo, don't rub it all over your body. Um, You know, that's probably not wise for several reasons. But the bacteria that causes leprosy is very slow-growing. Uh, it's, it progresses through a series of stages that take many years. First, you, you would find the nerve endings in your fingers and toes uh, going numb as they damage, get damaged by the bacteria. So you wouldn't be able to feel them, which makes them very susceptible to injury because you couldn't feel yourself hurting them. And then over the next decade or longer, the numbness starts to spread and the lesions that develop underneath your skin will start to form all over your body. And those lesions, wherever they are under the skin... They will turn the skin and even the hair that's in that area white, a yellowish white. And so over time, the person starts to turn white all over. In later stages, those lesions will break through the surface, the outer layer of the skin. They'll start to form open sores and then scabs and then sores and then scabs. And then the skin gets hard and scaly. And then it starts to really infect you know, your quality of life in serious ways. Your nails swell, fall off, gums bleed constantly. A nasal passage becomes permanently blocked. So then there's a constant stream of saliva out the mouth, and you lose your taste, you lose your sense of smell. In the very last stages of the disease, it starts to attack the eternal organs. And so then the victim is suffering from chronic diarrhea, chronic thirst, uh, burning fever, and ultimately death. Now, why did I take you through all that? Because um, of what you see going on in the man that we see here. Now, t- just in case you're starting to get a worried here, today that disease is reasonably easily treatable. It takes a a course of of antibiotics, maybe as much as one to two years of antibiotics, but it can be treated. But in Jesus' day, there was no cure. As a result, if you contracted leprosy, it was like being sentenced to a long 
slow, painful death with a lot of bad stuff in between. And because it was so mysterious, you know, so many people wouldn't catch it, but then somebody would. It, it confused people and made them wonder uh, whether they had the potential to get it or not. It seemed very random. And so people who were lepers were pariahs. No one would want to have anything to do with them. In Luke's account of this scene, the doctor Luke describes this man as covered. In Greek, it's the word full. Covered or full of leprosy, which would indicate to us that he's in the later stages of the disease. And that's why I wanted you to understand how it progresses. That's the kind of man you need to imagine right now. But beyond all the horrible physical and social aspects of the disease, we also need to appreciate a uniquely Jewish perspective on this affliction. Because the disease of leprosy is specifically mentioned in the law in the book of Leviticus. In fact, for being a relatively rare disease, it is the focus of two entire chapters in Leviticus. A total of 116 verses of the law are dedicated to this one disease. No other disease in the Bible receives anything close to that much attention. Which starts to beg the question, then what's God up to here? There's something going on, right? Well, in Leviticus... In chapter 13 and 14, you find these discussions of of, uh, leprosy. And in Leviticus, the people of Israel were told that anyone who was suspected of leprosy was supposed to go to a priest, and a priest would inspect them to see if they actually had the disease. And if the priest could see and diagnose the disease, they were labeled a leper. And once you were labeled as a leper, the law required that you tore your clothing and forevermore after that walked around in torn clothing. Wouldn't it be funny, you know, this is the irony of it, or the funny part of it. You have torn clothing, right? Eventually it wears out. You've got to get some new clothing, put it on, rip it all up again. That's what you had to do. It was a way of showing yourself to the world as a leper so no one would come across you accidentally. You had to cover yourself with clothing from the nose down everywhere you went in public. And then depending on the stage of the disease that you were in, a leper could be declared clean for a time, or then come back and be declared unclean again. Let me just read a short passage from Leviticus 13. You'll see what was being said. In Leviticus 13.9, it says, When the infection of leprosy is on a man, then he shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall then look, and if there is a white swelling in the skin, and it has turned the hair white, and there is a quick raw flesh in the swelling, it is chronic leprosy on the skin of the body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. And then it says this, If the leprosy breaks out farther on the skin and covers all the skin of him who has the infection from head even to his foot, as far as the priest can see, and the priest should then look and behold, if it has covered all his body, he shall be pronounced clean who has the infection. It has turned white and he is clean. In other words, when it goes into a kind of remission state where it's not outwardly breaking out in sores, but his his skin is all whole and white, he could be considered clean for a while. Then it says, finally, but whenever raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. So he would go back and forth for a time. Now, obviously, as you go progressing in this disease, open sores become more the norm. And so at some point, the person's just permanently unclean in the way that this thing would go. Now, with that knowledge of the disease, the way it progressed and the way the law looked at it, the Jewish people had come to understand something about this. They had come to understand leprosy to be a defilement, something that made you unclean to God. In fact, even the word uh, uh, leprosy reflects that thinking, because in Hebrew, the word for leprosy translates literally as a mark or a blemish. That is something that stains you, something that takes what is clean and pure and ruins it. It's in that sense. So if you were unclean because of leprosy, here's what happened to you. You couldn't enter the tabernacle. 
or the temple. Uh, You could not worship. You could not give sacrifice. You were barred from the feasts. You were barred from family, from family gatherings. You... Another Jewish person could not touch you, and you could not touch them. So you would not have physical human contact for years at a time. In fact, lepers were instructed as they walked down a road to yell, Unclean! Unclean! To give fair warning so no one would bump into them accidentally. Now this is not meant to punish them. This is meant to reinforce the concept of ritual cleanliness. But now if you move one chapter later in Leviticus to 14, you find instructions for what would be done if a leper was ever healed of the disease. And that's where we get to the interesting part of tonight for what we're looking at in this miracle. Because in Leviticus 14, the Lord instructed the priests that they were the ones who had to verify any supposed claims of healing of leprosy. And if you had someone who claimed that, they'd go to the priest, and the priest would carefully examine their body for seven days. In fact... I mean, this is almost as bad as the disease because they, they shaved every hair off the body, wherever it was, to make sure that there was no lesion anywhere hidden by hair. So that was part of the experience of those seven days. But if after seven days there was no evidence of leprosy, then the priest declared the person healed, clean, and then the eighth day became a long all-day ritual of sacrifices and offerings in thanks for that healing. And there would be a sin offering, a trespass offering, a burnt offering, a meal offering, and then some of the blood from all those offerings would be taken and applied to three different points on the person's body. Uh, There was a very elaborate ritual. They'd be anointed with oil and, and on and on and on for this whole day of ritual. Now here's where we're going with all this. You're probably thinking this is a lot of detail I didn't need. Maybe, but maybe you did. Because in all the history of Israel, from the time that law had been given to Israel, in all their history after that, There had never been a time when Leviticus 14 had ever been used. Not once. Now, there had been famous cases of people struck with leprosy. You may know some, right? Miriam. Now, she came before the law. So there was no instruction about what to do if she got healed. In fact, she was healed right after that by Moses. God did that as a demonstration. There was Gehazi, Uzziah. They were struck down by leprosy. They weren't healed. Uh, There's Nahum. You may remember the Aramean who was healed, but he was a Gentile. He wasn't under the law. He was healed, but he didn't have to go to the priests. So there had never been a case with anybody ever being healed, a Jewish person ever being healed since the law, so that Leviticus 14 had never been used. As a result of that, that eighth-day ritual had never been done. No priest even had done it. Now, because of all of that, because of the pictures the way the disease worked, because of the way the law spoke about it, because of the mystery of it, because no one had ever been healed of it, it became an interesting picture for sin. And the Jews recognized this. Think about it. Like leprosy, sin lives in your flesh. And over time, it just kind of grows and takes over. I mean, this is apart from saving faith. This is not a believer I'm talking about necessarily. We're talking about the person who has no corrective action on their heart. You know, have you ever wonder why old people tend to be cranky? I think it's true among a lot of unbelievers. And I think it's because the sin of their life just gets just builds up over time. And they get increasingly uh, leprous, if you will, in their sin. As it grows, it robs you of your senses. It destroys your fellowship with others. It defiles your body. It renders you unclean and unable to approach God. Ultimately, sin is a death sentence for everyone, just like leprosy. 
And like leprosy, friends, and here's the key, like leprosy, no one can be cured of sin apart from God's mercy. You don't see people naturally cured of sin. You don't find people showing up every day saying, I've been cured of my sin, not apart from Christ. And here's one last interesting detail. When you are clean of leprosy, you're white. And when you are clean of sin, Isaiah says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You think God may have instituted this disease and and had it go the way it goes so that he had a picture available to use for something equally corrosive and ugly and terrible? The Bible says that the kind of cleansing we need from our sin only comes by the application of blood. Now, in the case of leprosy, in Leviticus 14, they had to apply the blood of animals to the body of that person, remember? But in the case of sin, the only blood that God accepts is the perfect sinless blood of His Son, Christ. Now, because at Jesus' day, leprosy had never been cured, and that ritual then had never been instituted, the rabbis came to a very interesting conclusion. They decided that there must be a connection between God's planned appearance of his Messiah and his desire to cure leprosy. That there must be something we're waiting on. If he gave us Leviticus 14, but it's never been needed, he must be waiting for some reason to let it be invoked. And we're also waiting for the cure to sin, which is the Messiah, and he hasn't shown up yet either. Maybe they're going to come together. And so they began to conclude that only the Messiah will be able to cure a leper. That, in fact, God will use that miracle as a calling card to identify His Son when He comes. And here's why He might need one. You might say, well, why would He need one? He'll just do miracle after miracle, and that's enough all by itself. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Other people did miracles. You know, supernatural healing was not unknown. In Israel's history, the Lord would permit ordinary men to heal the sick and raise the dead even by his spirit long before Jesus showed up. Remember Elijah and the widow's son, Elisha as well. So it could have been the case that if Jesus shows up and heals and raises from the dead and the like, that people say, it's Elijah. In fact, later in the Gospels, that's exactly what some people were saying. So the father chose to validate his son's claims to being Messiah by reserving for him certain miracles that were anticipated by the law, but never given to anyone else to do. And so this is one of those so-called messianic miracles. A miracle distinguished by the fact that no one else would gain the power to do it. And up until the moment that Jesus heals this man... No one had ever seen leprosy cured. No one had ever seen Leviticus 14 put into action. Now this man comes to Jesus, and he bows before Jesus, and he says to Jesus, If you are willing, you can heal me. Now those two details tell us everything we need to know about that man's heart in this moment. First, he kneels before Jesus. That is, he enters into a posture of worship. What he just did right there is make a public declaration of deity. Before Christ. And to understand that that's no small thing here, you need to remember how extremely adamant Jews were about not worshiping anything other than Yahweh. They would even bar images of people or animals on their coins because they were afraid that that might be equivalent to idolatry. 
Alright? So yet, you have a Jew now willing to bow his, himself before another man, which would be an indication that he recognizes Jesus to be divine, that is the Messiah. And then he says, if you are willing, you can heal me. Now what did he not say? He didn't say, do you think you could heal me? Would it be possible? Do you have it in you? No. This man, for this man, it was not a question of whether Jesus could heal. The man knew he had the power to heal leprosy. So the only question is, are you willing to do it? Now here again, he's saying publicly, this guy can do what no one has ever done in our history. I mean, that's a pretty big step of faith, isn't it? So by his faith, he sets the stage for Jesus to perform a messianic miracle and in doing so, justifies claims to be Messiah. And in the process, he also takes the opportunity to distinguish, Jesus takes the opportunity to distinguish himself one more time from the Pharisees because look how he does the healing. What's the first thing he does? He stretches out his hand and he touches the man. Do you understand, in, according to the law, Jesus just became unclean for seven days? He just made himself unclean? That may have been the first human contact that leper had experienced in years. I mean, I, I, I know he was stunned to be healed, but I wonder if in that immediate moment before the healing, if he was just as stunned at the prospect that a rabbi would, would touch him. I guarantee you this, no self-respecting Pharisee would have dared to touch him, even if that man had the power to heal leprosy. You know, that's the funniest thing about this story for me, is if Pharisees had the ability to heal leprosy by touching men, no one would ever have been healed by leprosy. Because they would never dare make themselves unclean. But Jesus does that. He touches the man, making himself unclean. And here's what he just did. And this completes that picture of sin and leprosy, the connection. In effect, Jesus makes the man clean by taking upon himself the man's uncleanness. Ring any bells? Right? Symbolically, Jesus took the man's curse so that the man could be freed from it. And in the process, performed that messianic miracle. He didn't just stop the progression of the disease, I might add, because the text makes clear that this man is cleaned, cleansed of his leprosy. Look, modern medicine is wonderful, and we all have great admiration for those who can practice it. But they couldn't do this. The best modern medicine could do is stop the progression of the bacteria. They can't give you your hands back. They can't give you your nose back. Not unless you're God. And the Gospels say this man was instantly cleansed. He was as good as new. Now look where this ends in verse 4. The man is told by Jesus, first of all, don't tell anyone. Now at first you might think this is kind of odd because you're wondering why is he so worried about secrecy? But that's not the issue here. It's not about secrecy. It's about priority. Jesus knew that this man is going to be overjoyed at his healing. Who wouldn't be? right? And what's the first thing you're going to do if you're this guy and you've just been cured of an uncurable disease and your body is back, your fingers are back, right? Well, you're going to go tell everyone you know. You know, everybody in your family. Look, you can touch me now. I'm back. No, but that's not what Jesus' priority was. He knew if he started down that path, he'd never get out of it. There was a job to be done. There was an act of obedience that was required at this moment. Leviticus 14. And so Jesus commands this man, don't be distracted with celebrations right now. You need to go show yourself to the priest. What he said is, take the three-day journey from the Galilee southward to Jerusalem and present yourself to the priest there in the temple, as Leviticus 14 requires. And when he arrived, when this guy did this, and we can only assume he must have, when he got there, 
He was to come before, as, as Jesus says here, as Moses commanded, come before the priests and say, look at me, I've been healed, let's do this thing. Leviticus 14, come on. And what he's really referring to is that eighth day. I mean, the seven days, they've got to go through the ritual of checking and checking and checking. But it was the eighth day was the, was the real key. So what do you suppose the response was when he shows up at the priests and all the other leaders of Israel in the temple and they see this guy cleansed of leprosy? By the way, they weren't going to be able to deny the healing because remember the way God constructed the law, and you can see the wisdom of God now in this, the priest had to keep seeing this guy regularly, remember? Because he had to come every time he had a sore, oh, unclean. Every time the sore was gone, look, I'm good again, I'm good again. Okay, you're clean, go back, you know. So they've seen this guy who knows how many times. And they've watched the progression of the disease. It's like your doctor watching it. And now he shows up and it's, I mean, there's no denying this one, right? So he appears fully cleansed, not just in remission, but body restored. And you know they had to recognize the magnitude of what they just saw. Right? It's undeniable. They knew they not only saw a miracle, that's the least of it. They saw the miracle. The messianic miracle. The one no one's seen yet. And it just happened. What does that tell you? If, you're, if a messianic miracle is happening, there's a Messiah out there. That's what that means. Right? That's why Jesus said, go back. I want you to tell them I'm here. It's real. And then you have the priests. I just wish I could have seen this. You know, they're digging out the scrolls. So, I haven't done this. Have you done this? I haven't done this one. How do you do this? <laughs> I mean, they know how to sacrifice, but it's like a, it's like a recipe. I don't, I don't know how to do this one. It's all new. That's why he says this will be, in verse 4, look at the end, he says this will be a testimony to them. This man's healing certainly was a blessing to him personally, obviously. And it's a beautiful display of God's grace and mercy to this man. And we remember that part easily enough. But that's not what's most important. The most important thing about this miracle was that a restored body of a leper was intended to communicate to Israel that their Messiah had come and that they would see it for what it was and just embrace it for what it meant. That a divine healer was on their, uh, in their midst. Someone who had the power to heal not just the body, but the soul. And that he had the power and the willingness to do it. Now, here's what we would think, right? If you didn't know the end of the story, you'd be saying, well, the crowds must have just gotten huge and he was carried on people's shoulders and the Pharisees were just, you know, well, we know that doesn't happen, right? Well, Mark says that because of this one miracle, Jesus can no longer openly enter a city. He has to stay outside the cities because of fear of the Pharisees. Because as soon as the Pharisees heard of this healing, they travel from Jerusalem down to the Galilee to investigate because that's their pattern. Whenever somebody did something that might be messianic, their job was to check the facts and verify it. That's what Pharisees did. Uh, it was a rabbinical requirement. And so immediately after this happens, Pharisees are now part of the crowd. And they're standing back kind of saying, is this guy what we think he is or not? Let's check him out. But of course, as soon as they hear what he's saying, things like the Sermon on the Mount, well, they're not happy. They're not happy at all. So the question that's raised at this point in the gospel is, are the religious leaders of Israel going to embrace Jesus as their Messiah in light of that incontrovertible evidence that he just gave them? But they don't. Because for the priests and the scribes to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah would have meant that they must also concede that their system was bankrupt. 
Because Jesus set himself against that establishment. He said, they're wrong, I'm right, and by the way, I'm the Messiah. For those guys to say, yes, he is the Messiah, they would have effectively been agreeing with Jesus that their system was wrong. So if you were a rabbi invested in that current system, you had a very tough choice to make. Now, as Christians, we think the choice is easy. It's obvious. It shouldn't even be a question. But not for those guys. Because in order to embrace Messiah, you had to reject your culture, your system, your livelihood, your own power, your own prestige. You could either embrace Messiah and have the kingdom at the expense of all those earthly things, or you could hold on to your prized position of power and reject Jesus despite the miracles, in which case then you had to find a way to discredit them. The irony, of course, is whatever you were holding on to, you were going to give up when you died anyway, and then you get to see him again. Only that second time, the roles are a little different. I'm not being flippant about it, because judgment is nothing to be flippant about. But that's the, that's the reality for every human being on earth. That's for us, certainly those of us who know Christ by faith. We are on the right side of this concern by now. We've come to the light, so we're already in his care and love, and we have that future with him. But on the chance that someone in here isn't, it's at least worth saying that you're in the exact same situation as the Pharisees. That is to say, you've got your system, you've got your worldview, you've got your life, whatever that looks to you. And in some sense, the concept of embracing the Christian message that Jesus is Lord threatens that worldview, threatens that, that comfort. Because the concern that most people have is, I may have to give something up. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. You probably will. First of all, sin. That is to say, you can't enjoy it anymore. And there'll be some other sacrifices that God may ask of you. But here's the thing. Whatever you're holding on to right now, in place of Christ, you're going to give up when you die anyway. So what's your goal? 30 years? 50 years? 80 years? How long are you going to keep it? Then you get to see him with your knee bowed and your tongue confessing. The problem is this. Confessing Christ after you die doesn't buy you anything. But you will do it, the Bible says. Even the demons will. Now, the point of this teaching, the point of this example in Scripture is to say, look, he did everything he could, everything he needed to do to prove his claim. The only thing left is to believe it. I know that we have mostly done that, and I pray that we have all done that. If there's anyone in here who has yet to do that, now is a good chance to do that. We stand ready to accept your confession as Christ does, and we would love to embrace you over it. And for the rest of us who know him, let me encourage you in the weeks that come, as I'm gone and come back, and as other things happen in school and work and the regular everyday life that we all know gets into gear again. Don't forget that this is not life. This is temporary passing of time. What we're here to do is make sure that there's a few more with us when the kingdom begins. As Christ appoints, let's go out with messages of Christ's divinity, Christ's power, His compassion, His mercy, His opportunity to save, and the fleeting time we have to accept it. Let's see what God does with our devotion to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Father, for a night in which we could celebrate leadership. We could celebrate the growth and accomplishment as a body. We could celebrate uh, new teachers coming to teach us and vacations and so many uh, encouraging things, Father. Most of all, Father, thank You for the encouraging word. But, Father, I also recognize that you are the one doing the work of this church, not us. It is your word. It is all your glory that matters. 
Your son, Father, came and in a humble way represented your glory, demonstrating his power without doubt, and powerful men rejected him. Father, we pray that in this room tonight there's no one who sees their power and accomplishment as an obstacle to being humble before the Lord who created them and everything in this world. We pray that no one has heard the message of the gospel like Judas Iscariot did and rejected it for silver. We pray, Father, no one would come to to see Jesus for the very first time at a point that's too late. That everyone here would get to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for sin so that we might be clean. Let him touch each person here as he did a leper. Let everyone know he is Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ as we turn our attention to your word in weeks to come. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.